This is Moral of the Story. Interesting people telling their favorite short stories and then breaking them down to see what works and what doesn't. I'm your host, Max Chapovsky. On today's episode, we have Amanda Lannert, who is the CEO of Jelly Vision, the maker of interactive benefits communication software, Alex, which helps employees of some of the country's biggest companies understand how to choose a healthcare insurance plan, how to save for retirement, and more. Amanda has gotten many awards, uh, way too many to list, but uh, they include CEO of the Year, Woman in Tech, and many others. She is also, straight from her bio, quick to laugh, and most importantly, enjoys a good cupcake. I do. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So delighted to be here. Can we talk about the cupcake for a second? Where'd that come from? Um, We, we as a company spent a long time being uh, a startup, really early stage, which means kind of broke. And so the mechanisms for celebrating when you have very little money are different than the mechanisms you have for celebrating when you're profitable and growing. Uh, and so we used to buy a lot of cupcakes to celebrate. And we uh, we were basically a frequent flyer at Sweet Mandy B's. Uh, and it was a great way to cap a small win, a really inexpensive way, really delightful. Like, what's better than a cake for one? Not much. So you probably had a lot of cupcakes. <laughs> a lot of Sweet Mandy B's cupcakes. Fantastic. Tell me how you got here. Tell me your story. Um, I'm the kid of academics. My dad's one of those guys who knew what he wanted to be from the time he was 15 years old. And he spent 12 years getting there and he was the chairman of the Department of Neurology. So I, being a kid of a doctor and a nurse turned stay-at-home mom, said, I'm going to go to school, study English literature and biology and get a JD, MD, and uh, write public policy for hospitals about what to do about abandoned embryos and euthanasia. Uh, happened to spend a year abroad where I studied beer and boys uh, more than anything else and got behind in my pre-med credits. Came back and said to my dad, uh, had the year of my life. I traveled all over the world, learned a ton, met great people, drank a lot, super fun. Uh, but I got behind in my pre-med. I need one more year to go post back to complete my pre-med credits. And he said, that's amazing. How are you going to pay for it? And when I knew I was off the dole, I sat down and said, I have no skills, no network, and no experience whatsoever besides bartending, what's a girl to do? And thus began my career. I said, uh, with my incredible background, uh, it looks like I can maybe do advertising. And was very, very lucky that uh, I said, I'm an East Coast kid who didn't want to go all the way to the West Coast. I want to go to the Midwest. And looking at the Midwest for advertising, it really looked like just Leo Burnett. And so I applied to Leo Burnett, very unentrepreneurial, tons of research, picked Leo Burnett, applied there, the only place I applied, and I had a job there by January of my senior year of school. So start my career in business, show up with you know shoulder pads, the whole deal on my first day of work, and had an unbelievable run at Leo Burnett during its heyday. I learned that if you work with the right people, anything can seem interesting and important. And uh, people have become sort of the foundation of my career, but spent three years spending $110 million uh, getting kids to eat Pop-Tarts and Eggo waffles, and spent the second half of my career there uh, in a new brand, a new business development think tank, uh, helping a large company innovate. And I knew I wanted to go from big to small and slow to fast and consumer packaged goods in a grocery store to tech. And I met, uh, I met a company called Jelly Vision and joined it uh, six years out of school. And I joined as marketer. Uh, they weren't ready to give me a director of marketing title. I thought marketing manager was a step down given I was VP track at Leo Burnett. So we sort of agreed on marketer. And I joined a company at the height of its You Don't Know Jack gaming days. The talent, the, the comedy, the, the quality of the products was so great. It was really just an amazing company to join. And about six months later, I became president of the company and inherited the P&L of a company going off a cliff. 
Uh, CD-ROMs were dying. So too was our business. And it began a journey of accidental entrepreneurialism, as best as I can say it, where as a joiner, suddenly I was like, so now what do we do when the business that I joined, you know, sort of had the bottom fall out of it? What do we do? Where do we go from here? And how do we hustle our way back into a living? So if you were going to sort of describe my, my career trajectory, it's uh, choosing the best people I can find and having unbelievably fortunate things uh, come my way. Uh, and I've been at Jellyvision ever since. So you're here to tell us a story. Mm-hmm. Set the stage for the story. What does the audience need to know before you get into it? So the, the first thing you need to know is I um, mostly tell stories for a living. Um, I I think it's better to paint pictures than it is to prescribe. I think it's better to impart lessons than it is to give instructions. And so I really am a a CEO who finds myself in the same loop of stories. And I try to tell the best stories. They're not always my stories. But what I'm about to tell you is very true, very real. um, And it's about a real person, a woman named Bonnie St. John. To set the stage, it was in an Inc. leadership conference. I was sitting in an audience, rather, of about 1,000 people. And Bonnie St. John comes sauntering out on stage to music. Her hands are in the air. She's sort of dancing around. And she paints quite a picture. Um, She's a 54-year-old, very attractive African-American woman who has sort of a shoulder-length bob. She has a bright red jacket on, a very brightly colored floral skirt. And then she has this canary yellow patent leather pump on one leg and a canary yellow patent leather pump on her other leg, which isn't really a leg, it's a Terminator-like prosthetic. And it was just so interesting of a visual to see this woman dancing around with a prosthetic wearing a high heel that was a you know, canary yellow uh, shoe. And you go on to hear about this woman's story. Her, her, her company is called Courageous Spirit Inc. And if you know me, I'm like, Bonnie, settle down with that company name, just settle down. But really, boy, is that the appropriate name for this woman's company. Bonnie has done all kinds of interesting things. She's Harvard educated, has worked with the UN, worked with the Clintons, is literally a peacekeeper. But of all the things Bonnie learned how to do, she was born a child without means, had to have her leg uh, amputated uh, several inches above the knee when she was about 18 months old. And yet Bonnie learned to ski at the age of 14 on one leg and was good enough by the age of 19 that she qualified for the Paralympics in downhill skiing. And Bonnie is an amazing, amazing storyteller. Um, and she talked about how she almost didn't go because, her, you know, her family didn't have means, but her church raised some money. And so she was able to get, you know, enough for her mom uh, and her to get a ticket to go to Germany to race. And she talks about being at the top of the mountain when, when you're about to do an Olympic record run. And there was a bar that would go across one knee because she only had one leg, right? So there's a bar against one knee. And a person standing at the top of the mountain with the wind howling used to audibly count you down. So you'd hear three, two, one, boop, and then you push through the bar and you begin your run. And Bonnie was one of those skiers who went around the flags at a very high speed. And she said, when you're skiing well, you almost hear it as much as you can see it or feel it. So it's and Bonnie is doing her run. And she feels it. She is blazing. The turns are tight. She crosses the finish line. She catches her breath. And she says to herself, that is the best I could do. And she looks up at the scoreboard. And not only was she number one, she had set an Olympic record run 
The girl who didn't ski six years ago, who couldn't afford to go and almost didn't go, had just set an Olympic record run. And it's your combined two runs. You have to do two runs to determine the winner. So she goes, there's 41 seconds between me and gold. Today is my day. I am a champion. So she has to wait for other skiers to do their runs. Morning becomes noon. Noon becomes afternoon. And the sun that comes out, you know, during the day and softens the snow tucks behind the trees in the afternoon. And and the snow that's been softened starts to get a little bit hard, a little bit crispy, a little bit icy. And apparently when you're skiing on one ski at 70 miles per hour and you hit a patch of ice, you're likely to fall. And Bonnie's hearing in the afternoon, another skier's down, another skier's down, another skier's down. But Bonnie says, not me, not today. Today's my day. She's the last racer to go. One brief run between her and Olympic gold. She assumes the position, tees up against the bar. Three, two, one, boop, push, 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 and she's off. And again, it's blazing. She sees she has one last flag, makes a split second decision to take it tight, catches her ski on ice, and she falls. And she has this palpable moment where she goes, I can't believe I fell. And then she pops up and push, push, pushes herself across the finish line, catches her breath and looks to the board. And she had fallen from first to second to third. And in that moment, Bonnie St. John became the first African-American woman to ever medal in downhill skiing. Clinched a medal. But Bonnie being Bonnie, she couldn't help but reflect that that moment of saying, I can't believe I fell, cost her the gold. And her lesson, which was briefly on a Starbucks cup, is this. Everyone falls down. Winners get up. Gold medal winners get up the fastest. And if Jelly Vision had not had the resilience to pop back up, the humility to learn the lessons that the falls were trying to teach us, like if you hear every skier is down, maybe you take the last turn wide. And sort of a bottomless reserve of optimism and a good sense of humor, the company wouldn't be alive today and I wouldn't be here telling you Bonnie's story. Um, So that one is near and dear to me because I think it takes 20 years of, of thumps on the nose and entrepreneurship and business lessons and relationship lessons and puts it into a story about a one legged skier where you can feel the cold and you can feel the turns. But what you ultimately remember is it's not about flying down the hill. It's about popping up quickly when things don't go to plan. And I think that's about the best lesson I can give people as a mom of many daughters, as a, as a leader of many people, as a partner to many companies and customers. Like that's just one of my favorite stories and just a fundamentally great life lesson. Well told by Bonnie St. John. It's interesting. I'm teaching my five-year-old to ride a bike. And we're talking about, are we taking the training wheels off or are we not taking the training wheels off? We took them off a year ago and they promptly went back on. And so are we taking them off? And uh, I'm, I'm going down the sidewalk with her and she starts to kind of wobble a little bit and then she stops and she says, but Papa, what if I fall? And I say to her, there's a hundred percent chance you will fall. There's nobody that doesn't fall. There's nobody that hasn't fallen in the history of learning how to ride a bike. So expect that. The real question is, are you going to get back up and get back on that bike? 
No, isn't the real question like, do I knock out my teeth? How badly am I hurt? I mean, <laughs> I mean like maybe, maybe that's the question, but also like maybe like, am I going to cause bodily injury? No, that's it's exactly right. And it's like what I tell my kids when they're skiing is if if, if they haven't fallen, they're not trying interesting enough stuff. You fell today? Good. What, what were you trying? What did you figure out how to do? There's there's nothing wrong with a thump or two, and it's almost inevitable. So you might as well get thumped while doing interesting things. For sure. I think you answered the question of what the moral of the story is pretty clearly. Why is that the story that you choose to tell over and over again? I think that there are lessons you can talk about, like, you know, more fundamental business lessons that can be learned in B-school or through mentorship. But that's a life lesson that's totally applicable and inspiring and it's real and it happened to Bonnie St. John. And I can't figure out a way to get a story told in, in three minutes or four minutes uh, that, that is as visually interesting. Like you see it. I, when, I, when I think about this story, I am seeing Bonnie skiing. Uh, and I've never seen Bonnie skiing. Uh, and it's just a memorable idea of a one-legged you know, skier story being about resilience. Uh, I think it gets the job done with a lot of memorability, like and a lot of sort of visual impact. Uh, and that's why I tell it. It's, it's better than uh, I once had this customer and this thing happened and then I did this and then I did this. It's just sort of this like joyfully triumphant lesson where you can see Bonnie with her hands in the air, you know, as a champion, learning, learning all the while. I was just talking about this with another guest that uh, what makes, even though video is so ubiquitous now, what I think makes books and audio storytelling so interesting is that they involve the audience a little bit more. Like you're required to imagine that world in your head. Like everybody you tell that story to probably they imagine the, the end result is the same, but they might imagine the mountain a little differently. They might imagine, you know, um, the whole scene a little bit differently. That's right. So that's right. Um, what do you think in general makes for a good story? Memorability, drama, a moral, a beginning, middle and end. And, and, and visuals. And if you can create a visual in your head that sticks, then it's easier to pull from the sort of the, the giant, you know, file cabinet of lessons and, and insights and perspective. It's easier to pull if you have some sort of, you know, sensory cue, whether it's a visual or a smell you associate it with or a sound. It's, it's just more likely to be sticky in the memory and, and able to be applied, particularly for lesson isn't, you know, the story isn't just about. Uh, entertainment, but you're trying to impart a lesson. You're trying to you know, improve a mindset. You're trying to improve success, for example, at work. Uh, it's always better to have a story than just, you know, more, you know, rules to follow another policy. Um, and it's, it helps you make it more your own when you have a visual in your head. Totally. Uh, how do you, how do you tell stories in your own life? I have, I have a seven, seven to 10 stories that are really staples about how I try to coach lessons that are important. And then every Sunday at my family, we, we have this thing we call new food Sunday. And I make something usually with one of my daughters that I haven't made before. And we sit down and it's a long ordeal. And sometimes it goes very poorly. Sometimes new foods are not a hit. I've had tears, the whole thing, but we sit down we eat something new and we tell stories about the kids, about what they were like when they were little. And it, it, it almost it universally involves them being doubled over laughing and we're all just laughing, but we tell the stories of our kids as kids over and over and over every Sunday. Remember the time you, you used to do this. Um, and it's just like one of the ways our family bonds and checks in on a weekly basis. What's the craziest thing that you've ever made that was like a surprising success? 
a surprising success. You know, I try to turn things from one form into another. Like I try to make vegetables into noodles or vegetables into rice or vegetables into meat. And I've, I've been like rocking it with the zoodle lately. Now, not everyone likes it. Um, there's usually one, one family member it rotates is incredibly disgruntled, but if I can get, if I can get a majority, which is three out of five, I consider it a success. What's, uh, what's your medium of choice for storytelling? A small group setting, people sitting around when I'm trying to coach or when I'm just sitting with my daughters and I'm trying to give them a different way of thinking about the world. It's never, I'm not, I'm not someone who aspires for a mic on a stage. I want to be helpful. I want it to be intimate. Uh, and the way do I collect stories? I collect stories everywhere. I am regularly at conferences. I am regularly writing down stories I hear and trying to figure out how to retell them as my own. Um, so there, it just depends. I like to tell stories intimately and I collect stories vigorously and in any way I can. Do you change a story when you retell it as your own based on kind of the audience or the setting, or do you just verbatim sort of pay homage to the OG? So much like Tall Tales, my stories evolve over time. And if I'm in a live group audience, I will ask, has anyone ever heard of Bonnie St. John? And if someone says yes, I apologize because I embellish and I forget certain details. I've made them my own. So it is it is an ethos. Very true. All of my stories are very true. But like anyone who takes a story and tells it over time, it becomes your own. You start to remember it differently. You start to highlight different things differently. Um, so there is like I'm from the South. There's an aspect of tall telling uh, tall tale telling and in the way I tell stories. What advice would you give to those that want to be better storytellers? Practice. Practice. Storytelling is an art. And like all art, you actually get better by practicing. So it's not just tell stories, tell the same story over and over and over. And this is incredibly painful to admit, but you have to listen to yourself back. You have to listen to yourself telling stories and you have to listen to where was the moment of drama? Where was the right pause? Where did you have the words right? Like I started telling the Bonnie St. John story without the th 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 that got added in. And I edited in once and someone's like, wow, you're making like sound effects. I'm like, okay, good. To, I'm going to make sound effects. And so sometimes people have referred to it as a th th story because that's a really weird thing to do with your mouth. And it's a, it, it does kind of sound like that. Actually, it does kind of make that noise. And it, that's, it just evolved over time. So that's an aspect of that story that was invented largely because I started to get bored telling it the same way. And now I just sort of experiment and ebb and flow. And if you ask me in a year to tell you the Bonnie St. John story, I'll tell it slightly differently. I'm sure. But the th th that that's in that's <laughs> <It's> staple. <laughs> if you think of the Amanda from 20 years ago, what advice would you give her when it comes to storytelling? Patience. Don't rush the punchline. Be in control of the audience. Um, I think I think I in my 20s, I was fast on everything. I was fast to get the point out. I was I thought I had a very short window of people listening to my opinion. So you really race to get everything out. And, and sometimes you, if, and, you know, actually generate power and authority by being slow and allowing silence to be uncomfortable as I just did. And, and just making sure that your clock is the clock of an audience who's receiving versus just racing to get to the punchline. I just read uh, Kevin Hart's bio, which is, have you read it? No, but I am watching him on TikTok. The man is killing that new format. And, and his, uh, his autobiography is like nothing you've read before. Like, it's crazy. Uh, he actually talked specifically about rushing the punchline. He did a big show that was at that time the biggest of his career. And he talks about how 
he recorded it twice, two days in a row, because then he would cut back and forth. I'm assuming he had to wear the exact same thing both days, otherwise it'd be weird. But he talked about how after the first day, he realized how many times he rushed the punchline and it didn't work as well. And so he was able to, you know, kind of use that to his advantage. You know, for mastery, there are really two components that, you know, to have mastery of something, you need both competence and confidence and, and the ability to like own the pause and own the drama is both confidence and competence. It's hard to get right. For sure. What is your favorite book? Oh, I, I don't have a favorite book per se, but the, the last book I read that fundamentally I couldn't put it down and I'm not going to recommend it as a happy book, but it is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's called A Little Life. Um, and it is one of the most beautiful sort of following this young man's really tough journey. Uh, but it's beautifully written. Everyone felt so real. And it was one of those books. Uh, it's been a year. I can't stop thinking about the characters. I just I can't I can't move on. What a compliment to the author. Uh, it won a Pulitzer. I think it was haunting and beautifully done. Awesome. Well, that it does it for us. Uh, Amanda Lannard, CEO of Jelly Vision. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the opportunity. For Amanda's full bio, links to what we talked about, and then some, head over to mosspod.org. Thank you for listening. This was Moral of the Story. I'm Max Chapovsky, and talk to you next time.